Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher from Vox HQ in New York. How you wow, doing, Scott? Congratulations. The before Thank times. You. I'm Scott Galloway. <laughs> it's the before times. There's nobody here but us pivot people. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I was at your apartment. I'm in Scott's apartment, which is very mm-hmm. lovely. But I came down here to see the people in IRL, as they say. And it's quite uh, nice to see actual people because mm-hmm. I need you to prove to me, Scott, that you're sentient. It's easy. But how? I hate myself. <laughs> how do you know that sentient beings that we create from AI well, do not hate themselves too? I'm only asking because a Google engineer says the company has created a sentient AI. Google showed mm-hmm. him out the pod babe door for doing so. The engineer claims that a chat box called Lambda, which is interesting, uh, has achieved sentience. Uh, Google and the wider AI community disagree with the claim, but Google has put the engineer on paid leave, saying these violated the company's confidentiality policy. The engineer says he passed documents about the AI uh, to a U.S. senator's office. Essentially, he's saying Soylent Green is people. Uh, so what do you think about this? Well, so the basic notion was a bunch of, I think it was 17th century philosophers said that what makes us human is the ability to have emotions or feel something, right? To feel pain, mm-hmm. to feel sadness. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that we shouldn't, we should be less obsessed with this notion of creating a sentient machine. In other mm-hmm. words, this this value of, okay, I can think, but I can't feel. And the ultimate objective of technology or the real fear would be when something that thinks faster than us can actually feel. And I think the right. thing that plagues our society is that too mm-hmm. many f- people feel something and mistake it for thinking. I think yeah. we need to be more focused on going the opposite way. Like, oh, I would agree. they stole the steel. And I was like, well, let's slow down and actually think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. I've never understood. Also, I just don't believe that it seems to me that it's impo- it also comes down to intention like i mm-hmm. have i have predetermined intention that maybe it's programmed mm-hmm. by dna or a set of shared experiences but mm-hmm. i've never bought i've never been worried you know elon musk fear that the kind of skynet thing yeah. i've never bought yeah. it but i'm i I'm probably not thinking it through deeply enough he, well you know actually he's changed his thinking i interviewed him relatively recently on this and he thinks it's not going to be a necessarily uh angry at humanity uh sentient beings, uh, computer mm-hmm. beings or AI that's that that is has feelings. It'll it'll not care for us one way or the other the way we don't think about ants and anthill. And mm-hmm. if they want to build a highway, they'll build over us, but they don't you don't ever think about an anthill and you don't want to kill it. You don't want to maybe some kids who have problems mm-hmm. later want to do it. You just don't think about it. And he he thinks that more like he said more we're more going to be more like house cats to it. And that's mm-hmm. what his feeling was. So, it's not quite that sort of terminator idea of of these beings having intention and everything else. But talk about the hate thing, because I don't like that you say you hate yourself, but if that's how you feel. Well, more importantly, you know you know what the donut said once it had achieved sentience. <laughs> this is the part where you say, no, what did the donut say when it no, achieved sentience? No, what did the donut yet? say? I don't even want to hear this. I just spent two weeks with my brother and dad jokes, but go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead. There are dozens of us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Come on. I don't need. In any case, this is a really interesting question. Obviously, people will claim it. Interestingly, I just interviewed Jennifer Egan, who is that wonder who wrote a visit from the Goon Squad. She won a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize for it uh, and a, all kinds of awards. And this is her sequel, The Candy, uh, the Candy House, which is about 
someone who's like a Mark Zuckerberg-like character uh, who creates uh, the big social network. And then the second thing he does is a, is a cube that can download all your consciousness, all your history, all your memories, and you can access them. Mm. And the only way you can access them is if you do it, and then you can access other people's memories. So I could see what it was like for you as a young man, et cetera. Um, so it was, it's kind of interesting to think about this idea of where our consciousness is. I think that there's a term for that, and that's Google. I think with a thin layer of AI, you could start mm -hmm. to really understand. I mean, that's that the ultimate hack would be, mm -hmm. um, I've always said it would be of Google, because not only would it know if you're contemplating divorce or marriage, or mm -hmm. if you've terminated a pregnancy, or, sure. I mean, it, would, it just, it knows everything about you, but its ability to register emotions, mm -hmm. I think it could get pretty scary pretty fast. I've always thought Google would, if it didn't have such an amazing business, it would probably be the most amazing hedge fund ever. It can just anticipate so much. I mean, it is it is the collective sponge of everything, of all intention. I call it the database of human intention. That was That's how exactly I phrased right. it. Exactly but right. but this is about the past. If you could, if you could download your consciousness into mm -hmm. a computer, what mm -hmm. memory would you go back to? What memory? Yeah. And maybe it would isn't true. Well, the whole thing in this book is that some of them aren't the memories people thought they were. Of course, they. This is sort of like a. You ever see Defending Your Life with the? Uh, oh Albert yeah, with Albert Brooks. Brooks. It's a great film. Yeah, I know. And, and then Meryl of course, Streep. There's, How did you yeah, and then yeah, that's the funny version. The Black Mirror had one where people mm -hmm. could download their could 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 scroll back to their memories. What memory would you do? I would pick seeing my dad. I don't know. Probably some. I, I don't know about you, but occasionally I get very majestic and it's a good feeling. But I was looking at pictures, my 14-year-old uh, just graduated from uh, middle mm -hmm. school, and there were all these pictures of him. And I, I'm so sad because I forget like how little he looked just a few yeah. years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. look at that. Look at that yeah. little guy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm upset that I forget that. And it's yeah. weird kids. I think the reason that and there's a business learning here. I think most marketing um, comes down to the ability to create the perception of scarcity. Like, mm -hmm. okay, there's not enough Panerai watches. They purposely choke scarcity. They give you the sense that, okay, there's not that much of it. Because once something becomes scarce, you become obsessed with it. And I think part of the reason we fall so deeply in love with our kids is that if I see you in five years, you're going to be Kara. You'll be a little older, mm -hmm. but you're going to be Kara. Mm -hmm. You take an eight-year-old... And then you take yeah, them to 13, that eight-year-old's yeah. gone. Yeah. And you start You're developing. You're having a little moment here. You're having a little moment with your teen, become, your young son becoming a man. Well, you just realize, you see this, yeah. these pictures of this, like, gorgeous little boy who, who yeah. you know, was on the beach with you, and you're like, that guy's gone. Yep. He's not gone. I will get you a cube that you can have this all downloaded to yourself. Good. I'm ready. Send the cube. Also, bring bring the donut army. Yes, I will. <laughs> anyway, it's interesting. Today, we'll look at everything in the Senate from gun legislation to antitrust legislation and talk about the prospect of Netflix buying Roku. We'll speak with author David Gellis about his new book on Jack Welch. It's called The Man Who Broke Capitalism. But first, Meta is delaying an important step toward the metaverse. The company is pushing back on the rollout of the AR glasses that were supposed to come out. It had planned to release the first version in 2024. That was a big, you know, heralded thing. But employees were notified that Meta no longer has a plan to commercially release the version due to investment cutbacks in the division, AR, VR division. Obviously, Snapchat has been doing this and they were never going to release them. They're trying them out with creators and different businesses and things like that. As a, So what do you think? This is sort of a, uh-oh, spaghetti -o kind of thing. Yeah, but you've always said this. That, yeah, they were. I mean, yeah. uh, Meta had one good idea, 
Yeah, the Facebook mm-hmm. platform. And then they're probably arguably the best acquirer in the world. They're That's great correct. at swooping in saying WhatsApp and Instagram were amazing ideas and we're going to buy mm-hmm. it. But in terms of home, homegrown innovation, yeah. whether it's the Portal or Diem or Oculus. Portal's also been sidelined to enterprise, yeah. Yeah, it's it's they really haven't they they supposedly have shelved their watch. They had a vision for a watch, mm-hmm. and with these declining stock prices, and I would also I would uh, it's sort of a downward spiral. And a lot of people have said to me, Scott, antitrust. You're constantly on this antitrust rant. The market's going to mm-hmm. take care of itself. And to mm-hmm. just nod to them, the market mm-hmm. seems to be taking care of Meta because mm-hmm. what you yeah. have is when you have a stock price cut in half. A lot of people no longer feel the chains they felt to their desk or to one employer. They're like, I no longer investing a million dollars in equity a year. Mm-hmm. So I, I no longer have these golden handcuffs. So they mm-hmm. have a lot of probably talented people looking around. The stock yep. price has been cut in half. They have to show the market a certain level of focus. Yep. And a lot of these things just aren't showing. No. I mean, to a certain extent, Ruth Peratt brought this kind of focus to Google. Remember this about 10 years ago? This is Google CFO, who right. I had her on stage talking about it many years ago when she got there. Remember Google was going to try and cure death? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. She she put the kibosh on a lot of stuff. Yeah. She kiboshed. And very much pilloried for doing it. But I was like, go, Ruth. No, she was the adult in the room. They had like barges in San Francisco Bay that they were, I don't know, I'm going to do interpretive dance parties. Remember, don't you remember balloons that were going to bring internet oh, yeah. to the world and yeah. all kinds of crazy shit? They had a lot more than that. Yeah. yeah. But the thing yeah. about the thing about Facebook is that, I mean, the big thing here is that Meta or Reality Labs, $10 billion, That's and it just, doesn't, it just doesn't look like it's working. The next, I, I think the next shoe to drop Supposedly, Apple is working on um, VR glasses. They are. I'd be very curious if that continues. Um, I, I don't know. Don't think- I think that this is a big interest of Tim Cook's, very big. As I told you, when we had lunch, that's all he talks about is AR. AR, AR. Well, I AR think is different. AR is <laughs> AR is holding up your phone. I, I think that- I know, but he. I think he feels like there needs to be a device to like AirPods with the eyes. I, I think I, there's no question. I think they're going to go into that. I would think. But, that's my uh, impression. My feeling is these guys don't have enough evolutionary anthropologists walking around the hallway, and that is, yeah. I was getting my teeth cleaned, and they give mm-hmm. you these new VR headsets where you can watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I find that you're it's uncomfortable, and it goes back and uh, for me to when your peripheral vision is taken from you, it's you mm-hmm. have a, a a level of unease because the things you could eat and the things mm-hmm. that can eat you don't come straight at you. You come, They come from the sides or behind you. When you enter into a fully immersive experience where you can't, you don't have any peripheral vision, most people are more comfortable watching Top Gun 2, Maverick, in mm-hmm. a theater or at home where they have still control of their peripheral vision and they can, mm-hmm. you know, see what else is going on around them. I yep. find putting a totally immersive experience on very highly sensory, but exhausting and uncomfortable, and I can't do it for very long. And I think the majority of the people feel the same way. I tried it at Sony. I went to Sony ten years ago and had a headset put on me of mm-hmm. a. It was a game. It was one of the. It was sort of I think a war game kind of thing. And I remember going like moving my head around a lot. Like where am I? 
And yeah. I know I looked ridiculous. I was also aware of how ridiculous I must have looked. So that was another thing. No more ridiculous um, than without them, just, you know, just fair, to thank help you, you out. Um, okay. Okay, we'll see where it's going. I think eventually there'll be some heads-up display of some time. I just found my Google Glass the other day. They were kind of cool. Oh, yeah. They're kind of, I put they it on good. and I wandered around. Yeah, they looked okay, okay but they were useless. They were useless on every level. I think there is a heads-up display of some sort coming, whether it's for just voice or something like that. Uh, but it will have some AR element they'll be looking out into the world. Like you said, cameras in the iPod, AirPods. Anyway, uh, we'll see. Let's see. We, we know this is a this has been a big bet, and it, we'll see. It's a long term bet for sure, and they're going to and it's a short term world, unfortunately, for Facebook or Meta. Okay, let's get to our first big story. Netflix might finally get a Roku for the basement. Um, at least that's what Roku employees are at saying. Rumors are swirling inside the company about a possible acquisition by Netflix, which you discussed. Uh, the deal would give Netflix access to Roku's lucrative advertising platform, which they've been trying to get into. It makes sense as the streaming company plans to sell ads. In recent weeks, Roku abruptly closed the trading window for all employees, blocking any sales of vested stock. We're recording this on Monday, so if the deal happens before we publish, just know we were right, including Scott Galloway. Talk about this. Why does it want the hardware? Is it just advertising? Obviously, Roku is now making content too, so that fits into Netflix. It's kind of a nice, uh, it's a nice, that's why you thought that, I think, for a number of reasons. Uh, it brought in $647 million in ad sales. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Seven times the size of its hardware business. As Twitter points it out, we get it wrong a lot. But I, I think, mm -hmm. I mean, literally two or three weeks ago, I think we said that Roku would be an mm -hmm. acquisition, a great acquisition yes. for Disney or Netflix. Roku offers a vertical Platform. distribution to Netflix and or Disney and is way off its high and now has a $12 billion market cap. That is a very interesting acquisition for Netflix mm -hmm. or Disney. And what Netflix has, what's so powerful about Netflix, in addition to the budget and incredible mm -hmm. culture that produces great content, they get really powerful signal liquidity that HBO didn't get from the cable companies. HBO That's wasn't going to let them watch or let yeah. them know whether people watch Euphoria all the way through or mm -hmm. you know, if they were watch the same episode again, what have you. Mm -hmm. Netflix has that. They get that right. data. But what Netflix doesn't have is mm -hmm. what you do when you leave Netflix. Yeah. And also, I mean, you get a few things with vertical distribution. Um, you get to control. When Apple says, I don't like Meta or mm -hmm. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg, because they control the end distribution, mm -hmm. they can put a, a, a pop-up window on everyone's phone saying, would you like to opt out of tracking on Meta? Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and so there's just a certain level of control that it's very mm -hmm. hard to maintain the kind of brand that Netflix has without controlling your distribution. I would agree. It's the same thing with Facebook and phones. Remember, like we, that was the big, that was sort of a fatal flaw for that company not to be successful in phones. Um, mm -hmm. So is this, I think it's a great move. I don't, some people thought it might be desperate. Yeah. I don't. I think it's actually quite smart. Agreed. Even though, let me just, I'm going to play something. Reed Hastings has previously said that he doesn't want to do hardware. Here's what you told me and Peter Kafkin in an interview in 2014. And would you ever make a device? No, uh, definitely not. I mean, we're working on, you know, I think it's over a thousand devices now that we're on and we uh, work really well with all of them. Um, there's no value add to us doing a device. When you look at the Apple TV, the Chromecast, the Roku, I mean, there's just so many of these Amazon Fire with its, you know, um, voice interaction. When was that, Kara? 2014. He can change his mind. I'm, oh, I'm fine with it. That was literally the before times. The four times. I mean, big acquisitions. Yeah, so, talk about the acquisitions. Ten point five billion market cap. Netflix is just over eighty billion now since it's been hit. Uh, it has six billion dollars of cash on hand. Um, 
the price target is low for Netflix. So what do you think? I think it makes a lot of sense. And the thing we didn't mention that Netflix would get if it acquired um, Roku is they would get um, hundreds, if not thousands, of relationships with advertisers. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And an advertising engine. It's a big and I, I personally think that um, Netflix shouldn't be in the business of advertising. But if it was going to create mm-hmm. a, a, a a different brand or a sub brand or a tiered offering mm-hmm. with advertising, they have their advertising. I mean, look at what we do. And the, the reason, you know, you're starting a new podcast, I have Prop G, and when we, one of the reasons we work with Vox is Vox has relationships and a well-oiled advertising machine, monetization machine. Netflix doesn't have that. They don't, they don't know who buys media at Procter & Gamble. And all of a sudden, when they show up, Roku can show up and go, hey, how'd you like to reach people watching Euphoria <laughs> this, yeah. this, this Thursday's drop? It's good for Roku, too. Ad buyers for over-the-top devices could be, have had problems with this, that one study found that streaming devices like Roku continue playing even after users have switched off their TVs, serving yeah. ads to an empty house. So this, you know, they this would give them help in that regard, um, given you don't know whether they've turned them off, but Netflix has a lot of content to put these ads against. So I spoke to the Roku. Um, I did an all hands with Roku, uh, I think oh. about two, three months ago. And someone oh. in the audience, you got to like the culture. The culture is clearly mm-hmm. very open. Someone said, mm-hmm. what do you think happens to our stock price? And the stock mm-hmm. price was already off like two thirds. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think there's a floor on your stock because you'd make a great acquisition for Disney or Netflix mm-hmm. that don't have vertical mm-hmm. distribution right. and are huge content companies and the only ones that really don't have any sort of vertical distribution. But I think this is a marriage... I mean, I think the stories got out a little bit in front of themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a rumor right now. I don't think anyone's announced anything. No. It's weird that they've stopped trading. Yeah. Where is H. Warner or Disney in this? Or, you know, could they come in here? I think think the folks at Disney and the investment banks (laughs) that represent them have said, okay, if this is true, we should sharpen our pencils. And no one likes to get into a bidding war. Mm -hmm. But I think this would, I think this makes as much sense for Disney uh, as Netflix and Netflix. What about Warner? Warner doesn't have the money. Yeah, Warner can't. They do not. I mean, Warner. Warner's already got an enormous merger thing to digest, and mm-hmm. I, I think they've got to. I think they they've got to like digest this meal before mm-hmm. figuring out another big transaction. I don't. Right. So Disney. I just don't think they can do it. But Disney. Disney's got, coming think, in hot with a lot of movies this year too. This summer. That's right. And vertical mm-hmm. distribution. Roku's built in a and just an incredible business. Mm-hmm. Um, I use but, it all the time. Do you like Roku? Yeah, I use Apple TV sometimes, but I find it harder to use. I never thought Apple was very good on software, whether it's QuickTime. Anything they do is mm-hmm. very hard to figure out. And Roku is real easy. I use Apple. I use Amazon's Fire Stick sometimes, but mm-hmm. not that much. Um, but I often access all these things either through. Xfinity or Apple or Roku, but Roku mm-hmm. is the easiest one to use. I have to that's say, I, I mean, that's at the end of the day. Both mm-hmm. said the new technology is design and UI, and your mm-hmm. ability to create a visual language that feels instinctual is kind of the new. I think that's yeah. you know when you're when you when you're in a VC pitch meeting, the VCs will say, "Who's the tech guy or gal?" I think pretty soon they're going to say, "Who's the UI guy or gal?" I think that's the genius of Snap. I think it's the genius of Airbnb. It just feels intuitive. Agrees. And also one of the things is when you go to Apple or Xfinity, there's so much other stuff there. It's mm-hmm. like, what? Uh-huh. Like Xfinity, I suppose, I would I would rank Roku 1, Xfinity mm-hmm. 2, and Apple. I just, there's, suddenly there's iTunes there. There's, like, there's a lot going on. It, mm-hmm. Steve, interestingly, I was just reminded, 
uh, I had uh, dinner with, uh, with Walter Isaacson recently, and we were talking about the idea of Steve wanting to fix TV at the end of his life. That's what he talked about in an interview with me just before he died, talked to Walter about it. And one of the things he would have done is he would have made a great TV interface finding, and all the content would, like, would have been on there. I just feel like he would have solved that problem. But Apple has not done that. So. I think the thing that's missing are the innovation around TV in terms of interface is voice. And that mm-hmm. is, I, I find I don't watch live TV anymore. I had the mm-hmm. I wanted to watch the hearings. I have such a I've pretty much given up on live TV because I, I, mm-hmm. I now get it through I think Hulu, and mm-hmm. I never Hulu only says all right you're not at home. I mean I'm at home. I'm never at home, and so I have to mm-hmm. figure out a new login or if I want to pay more money. Yep. And I've just given yep. up on it. Mm-hmm. And I find what Spotify did, um, putting everything sortable and easy on one mm-hmm. button. TV yep. just, I think streaming is just a shit show of passwords. People have worry, tried. You know? There's been lots of companies. Uh, the guy who runs Yahoo now, Jim Lanzone, had one, if you remember. Mm-hmm. They all have tried, and I forget the names of all of them. Um, in any case, uh, it's a good. we like this match, and we hope it mm-hmm. happens, because it'll be good for Netflix. It'll be good for Roku. We'll see mm-hmm. if Disney tries to spoil the party. What do you think? What's your prediction there? I don't know. I mean, right now, it's still early days. It's not even, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. What's interesting is I don't. I don't think Netflix came out and discredited the rumor. And if there was no truth to it, I think they would have come out and said, "There's this is pure rumor. I think they've been oddly yeah. silent around this, which probably means they mm-hmm. are in discussions. I believe they're doing it. And guess what's next week? What's that? The big advertising festival, Con Lion. I'm going to be there in France. Oh, you're, you're going to the Creativity Festival, yeah. Guess who I'm interviewing? The CEO. Ted Sarando. I'm interviewing Ted Sarandos. Well, good for you. I don't know. He hasn't told me anything. Yeah. But- there you go. I've been there a lot. Go to, well, anyways, I'll give you some tips. All right. Okay, good. I've been there several times. I always end up on a Bob Pittman yacht <laughs> with like very attractive people. And I'm like, get yeah. me the fuck off this yacht, essentially. What? Anyway, I'm trying uh, to get I, on that yachts. Yacht. No, I don't like it. I don't drink. I don't like woohoo. I don't like the pulsing music. I just am like, let me go to my hotel room and watch. TV. Anyway, Scott, let's go on a quick break. When we come back, it's antitrust summer. We'll speak with a friend of Pivot, also David Gellis, about the legacy of GE's Jack Welch. Scott, we're back. This could be antitrust summer if a coalition of business and activist groups have their way. Fight for the Future's Evan Greer actually declared this, quote, wet hot antitrust summer. More than 120 organizations, including Yelp, Spotify, and EFF, are pushing the Senate to pass two antitrust bills. The new campaign that looks like an ad for a summer festival says the groups say that, quote, big tech giants are violating our rights and undermining our democracy. Well, that's pretty stark. The Senate could vote on the bills this month. There's a lot of back and forth. I've heard a lot of uh, real criticism from tech saying it's written in a way that's really problematic. And the bill's sponsors say they have the votes, votes though, to pass it into law. Amy Klobuchar is involved, a whole bunch of people. It's safe to say you can leave the sunscreen at home for this one. So what think you? I think this is overdue. I think the notion that you um, can aggregate all the traffic and then start competing as a platform and then start competing with your customers Mm-hmm. You got to admire that Google's been able to pull it off. Um, another speaking gig I did, I was speaking to a platform, and then one of the booking engines said, you know, what happens to us? And we're so dependent upon mm-hmm. the platform. I'm like, over time? Yeah. I mean, if you type in airfare hotel, Google, Google. has decided they want to yeah. be in that business. And the thing is, they they're not as good at it as Kayak or Booking.com. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they'll get there. They're not bad. <laughs> they're not <laughs> eventually, bad. I they'll get them. there. And when mm-hmm. Apple, 
when Apple can track all the data and how much people are paying for Spotify or for Amazon Music mm -hmm. and says, you know, we can be in this business and started managing mm -hmm. their own. That's what it comes down to. Should you be able to advantage your own business when you're the platform? Let me go into the two acts. One is the American mm -hmm. Innovation and Choice Act prevents tech mm -hmm. giants from favoring their own products and services, for example, self-preference. Also has some implications about interoperability. The second one, the Open Markets Act, allows developers to use outside payment processors. That's been a big deal. That's aimed at Apple and others. Blocks platforms from enforcing preferential pricing rules. Blocks platform owners from using third-party data to compete with apps on their platform. Bars platforms of a certain size, by the way, from ranking their own apps ahead of competitors. Let me just say, the pushback from tech is that, like, look, TikTok does doesn't have to do this. Why do like it? It's unfair to certain companies over others, and they they mm -hmm. all mention TikTok. You know, in mm -hmm. terms of not being subject to these things, um, and that it's not equal. And there's a bunch of other things that they think is going to be the unintended consequences. That's their favorite word lately. Um, so I'm just saying their point of view. And there's some of it. There, there's going to they're going to have to change some things in the bills, um, but it will affect. Um, uh, it could affect the big ones, but not, say, a Netflix, Spotify, gaming companies and things like that. That would be good for them, presumably. What do you imagine here? This is that it will pass, that there finally will be a version of this that's not necessarily as watered down as people had worried about? Yeah, I, it, something's going to happen here. I think Senator Klobuchar is this rare breed of leader who has respect and cooperation and 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 a certain level of civility to get things done. And I think I, I don't know if it's Grassley as the co-sponsor. She's gotten there's a bunch. Yeah. There's a bunch on all these. It's all. It's got a lot of Republicans. Something's going to happen. The problem is, is that the lobbyists will come in and say, "Hey, we're here to help shape and craft this thing." And what you worry about is you end up with GDPR that just ends up advantaging, or really mm -hmm. damaging or inhibiting small and medium-sized media companies instead of the companies that was supposed to. Mm -hmm. Put a collar on. So th th there th are there are ways to protect against that in these bills. But one of the things that I think they are correct in that. Someone like a TikTok can just do whatever it wants versus mm -hmm. these That's guys. That's a fair point. And I think it's a fair point. And how do you address yeah. that? How is that addressed? And then some of the things around privacy, some things a lot to shut. They always say they have to shut down certain things. They're not going to be able to do certain things. Um, and it's not as simple as all that. Of course, these are companies that have been advantaged for so long that they don't mm -hmm. like the advantage being taken away. So, yeah, we'll see. Well, have you heard it? I mean, have you talked to anyone there? Or at yeah, I, I did. I, it was a lot of, I talked to people at YouTube. They're quite upset about it. Um, I talked to Klobuchar at, at an event about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's, I think the question is, can they pass anything? Like there's also the Transparency Act around academic research, which mm -hmm. is sort of moving slowly. They had some hearings on it. Uh, Casey Newton wrote a lot of really cool things about it, like good analysis of it. But, you know, are any of these going to pass? The transparency thing with academic research, I think, is very important. And how they do it, it seemed to be a pretty good um, situation. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. But one of the things that is in the Senate, the bipartisan group of senators reached a deal on gun safety over the weekend, although it's still not a bill, if mm -hmm. passed into law, which they've got to write, the agreement would increase background checks for gun buyers under the age of 21, fund increase, but the thing is, fund state grants for red flag laws, encouraging them to do so, provide funding for mental health and school safety programs. Mm -hmm. That seems good. The deal, it's it's the minimum they can do here. The deal is already high profile supporters, including President Biden, who said it's not everything. I want, but it's some, it's a move forward. Chuck Schumer and 20 senators from both sides of the aisles. It's in word only. It hasn't been written down as a bill. And Mitch McConnell has not signaled that he's on board. Um, maybe he's mm -hmm. hoping everyone will forget what happened in uh, Uvalde. Um, what do you think? Some of it's, it's not as what everybody would like, but it's something. What thinks you? Yeah, look, at, at the end of the day, it, 
it's a start. And it just right. it shows that we can, in fact, pass gun legislation. And it, yeah. so, you know, if I'm if I have to raise my hand, I vote for it. There's a mm-hmm. lot here that kind of like, I don't know, bothers me. I was asked to go on television and I agreed to talk about the connection between young mm-hmm. men and aren't attaching and gun violence. And I said, I, I canceled last minute. I'm like, I'm worried I'm going to end up being um, a loop on Tucker Carlson saying this is a mental yeah. health issue. Because here's the mm-hmm. reality. Violence in the yeah. U.S., 4% mm-hmm. of it is committed by people who are mentally ill. Yeah. And this, yet again, I, I mean, more money for mental health. Yeah. But but the reason why you want to provide mental health is for a lot of reasons, including the notion that someone might kill themselves. So great. Mm-hmm. Funding for mental health, fine. But I'm worried it's being weaponized as a distraction from the real problem here. And that is the best gun regulation we could have. The best gun regulation in the world is a 25th mm-hmm. birthday. Mm-hmm. And what I would have liked to have seen is... So age, to, not mental illness. Age is age is what you're talking about. Oh, 100%. It's yeah. age. And it's so, okay, fine. We distract people by saying, and, and we do need more mental health counseling, but it's for a series of other things. And the thing I don't like is that we fall into this this trap of profiling young men that if they're mm-hmm. loners and not very socially active, that for some reason they're more prone to pick up an AR-15. And mm-hmm. it's 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 mentally ill people are more likely to be the subjects and the victims of violence, not the perpetrators mm-hmm. of violence. Yeah. Now, so mental health, money for mental health is fine, but under the auspices of thinking this is going to solve mass shooting, and yeah, it's been watered down so much. It's loneliness. It's loneliness and isolation is not necessarily mental health, but it's a way people think. And then who well, gets to, like you said, you're not going to see a soccer mom running into a school doing this. If you it's look just, at the mass shooters, they are, yeah. they, they are tend to be young. They tend to be male. They tend to be aggrieved feel mm-hmm. they're hugely upset about what they feel as social status. They feel aggrieved. They feel entitled. They feel rejected by women. And guess mm-hmm. what? I hate to say that. If you started saying we're going to profile these people, you're going to have 2 million young men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, That mm-hmm. describes 50% of all men be, at some point their junior year in high school. So yeah. Yeah. the notion that these uh, that's part of growing up and the notion that that means they're going to pick up a gun is just not... Yeah. What they're not... What they're not passing is that people under 21 can't get these guns. And that's, they refuse that's to do that. That's very disappointing. Yeah, that's it is. That's very disappointing. Age right? gating here. Mm-hmm. Age gating is, I, I, it's kind of my new go-to around social mm-hmm. media and guns. Mm-hmm. Best regulation mm-hmm. against guns is is a 25th birthday, full stop. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think 20, forget it. They're not going to go to 21. Yeah, I agree. So we'll see where yeah. it goes. These things have a way of petering out um, as people become, move on to the next big thing. What like do you think? Do you think it's going to pass, Kara? Do you think we're going to have it? They're going to pass something. I just think it's a lot of that we suggest that you do this. You know, mm-hmm. we suggest you do red flag laws. I mean, n- mandating is my feeling on some of these things. They should have federal background checks, period, done. Mm-hmm. Kids under 21 can't buy, uh, uh, and I say kids, should not buy uh, these kind of weapons. Um, we have it for other stuff, guns and everything else. We have some guns you can't buy until you're 21. So I, I would imagine putting especially these, these. you know, I would like not to be able to, people to buy these at all, but those these particular guns, weapons of war, but that one's just a non-starter, I think. Um, and the mental health stuff should not be aimed at necessarily mental health, but how to bring, how to de-isolate young men, particularly from and for a host society. of reasons. Uh, yeah. Uh, but 
I mean, let me so let me let me come out of the closet as one as someone who considers themselves a liberal and warmly embraces that term. I think it's a positive, not a negative. I'm sick of conservatives bragging about uh, trying to out conservative they are, and all liberals and progressives running from that term. I'm a proud liberal, and two, I would a hundred percent like to see the Second Amendment repealed. Oh, God, I, and okay. then we have an honest conversation around mm-hmm. saying gun laws and gun safety, the notion somehow that uh, liberals and the left have fallen into this notion that we have to preserve, just as Twitter is a national treasure, no, it's not. And you know what? The Second Amendment can absolutely be repealed. It's totally outdated. It it ends up queering every conversation where we say, oh, it, but the Second Amendment, well, we've, we've repealed other amendments. Yeah, it does say well-regulated. Does say well regulated. It's right in there. It's right in there. Regulated means regulated. I, look, I don't think it's going to be repealed. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it could be well regulated. I'm just so sick of Democrats. Like, I believe in the Second Amendment. Well, no, do you really? I know they kind of they they see the polling data. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Start changing minds. Anyway. Well, yes, exactly. That is really the point. Now I'm living in my fantasy sentient land. <laughs> yes, I see that. You and the, you and your computer can talk yeah. about that. Can I ask your advice on something? Because uh, it's an opportunity to talk about me. Sure. I have my book coming out, I think around Labor Day. You have another book? I have a book coming out. Daddy likes to write. I see that. What is it called? It's a slim novel of what? Of love and betrayal? I've been depressed lately, which means it's going to be good. I see that. I can write when I'm down. Anyways. Okay. Um, it's called Adrift America in 100 Charts. As you can imagine, it's not a message of hope. No. <laughs> I'm going to get my – send the plane stat and I will come find you. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, Go ahead. good. Yeah, I, I, have, I have less reason to be upset and depressed than anyone else. First, let's start there. I agree. But that's not going to stop me. Would you, I, you know, so I got to go on my book promotions <laughs> tour and all that stuff. Would you go on Tucker Carlson to promote your book? Or should I go on Tucker Carlson to promote my book? And I'll tell you, they asked me, and this is what I said. I'll tell you what I said after. Um, do you wow. I would pick another Fox News host. I would not go on Fox, but not him, because he'll twist everything mm-hmm. you do. Aren't we adrift in America, Scott? I completely agree with you, and it's because so you're of saying So you're saying it's about mental illness and that the election was stolen. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think he'll just, he's such a constant manipulative chode that he can't do mm. anything about that. Huge audience. Uh, I know that. I know that. But it's not that huge. You know, I think you should— uh, mm, His audience is big. I understand. But it, you could you could pick—there's other Fox News hosts you could do. Um, Brett Baer, I think. But I think you should go on the channel, just not on that show. Sorry. It's just— yeah. So you landed on the same place I did. I said no. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like—I feel that Tucker Carlson especially— um, I mean, uh, th- this bullshit around Sheryl Sandberg mm-hmm. under investigation for misappropriation of company resources. Have you noticed that it's the Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Fox? Mm-hmm. These coordinated attacks by by Murdoch-owned properties after emerging progressive voices. It's happened to my friend Kara Swisher. Mm-hmm. It's happened to my friend Stephanie Roll. Mm-hmm. I'm just not down with it. Yeah. And Tucker is sort of the lead dog on this. Yes. So I— I ended up at the same place as you. I said, you. I, w- I think it's important to be engaged with with conservative viewers. So, And I'm a huge fan of Neil Cavuto. Neil is great. And so I said, reach out and see if Neil, if Neil will have me. But um, It's Steve Hilton. He has gonna... a Sunday. I think it's a Sunday show. I think Steve is very smart. Um, yeah. Uh, I think a, they, have, they have several smart. I, I like There's Stuart a lot Barney, of shows there that you can. Neil is my man. Yeah. I'm a huge fan Neil of Neil Cavuto. Neil is great. And he would get it. He would certainly. Anyways. Yeah. Don't go on Tucker Carlson. 
Anyway. Adrift, American 100 Adrift. Charts. Oh, I could just see it. Oh, God, he'd exhaust me. And, and you'd be mad, and then you'd be depressed more. All right. There so now, uh, let's bring on our friend of Pivot. David Gellis is a reporter and columnist for The New York Times. He's also the author of a new book about the former CEO of GE called The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America. Wow, okay. And how to undo his legacy. Welcome, David Gellis. Thanks so much. Hi. I saw you in person recently, and this title of this book is something else. Like, wow, that's something else. So why don't you why don't you start to talk about it, the legend of Jack Welch. There's a legend of Jack Welch, and then there's the reality of Jack Welch. Uh, he was a Tough kid from Boston suburb, rose through the ranks with his fierce management style and became one of the most important CEOs in America and possibly the world for a long time. So talk about the myth versus the reality. Well, the myth of Jack Welch was maybe best summarized by Fortune magazine, which at the end of his career crowned him manager of the century, you know, bestowing mm -hmm. this ultimate capitalist honorific on him, essentially suggesting that everything he had done along the way for 20 years running GE Mm -hmm. was the right thing to do. He was the mm -hmm. guy, they seem to say. But we need only look to the beginning of his career when other people were calling him Neutron Jack to understand that yes. there was a much darker side to this story. Right, right. And so talk a little bit about that because he, you know, this management style, which everyone revered, explain what his management style was. It was the, oh, God, they have all kinds of names for it and I'm blanking. There was Six the Sigma, there was the Vitality Curve, right? There's like, there's right. all the Neutron, Neutron Jack. Jack. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, overriding all of that was mm -hmm. this alpha male, I would argue mm -hmm. toxic, fear-based mm -hmm top-down hierarchical leadership, which of course is still familiar to so many of us today who have worked at any mm -hmm. company because it became mm -hmm. the norm. But you know, we can talk about his management style, which was very aggressive. He would argue even with people who agreed with him. But mm -hmm. more important than that, I believe, are the tactics he used to make GE such an influential, and we got to add, give him credit where it's due, the most valuable company in the world. And I mm -hmm. look beyond the style to the substance and the way he treats his employees, his workers, mm -hmm. not just the way he interacted with his colleagues, but what was the actual effect on the ground? And that Neutron Jack title gives you a clue. He was merciless. He was the downsizer in chief, and he set mm -hmm. the precedent for the rest of corporate America to do the same sort of thing. Uh, first off, David, congratulations on writing a book while still in high school. How old are you? <laughs> I think I'm 42. I think I'm 42. Okay, forty-two going on eighteen. Okay. What's your what's your secret? Oh my god! What's Do not ask about his skin regimen. Can you move to the book, please? Move along. I can't. Meditation, Anyways. meditation. Um, <laughs> that was my first book. I was a meditator. You guys know this. Meditation. There you go. Meditation. Um, so my sense of GE is every time we peel the onion back from his tenure, it begins to like get closer and closer to fraud. Uh, that if you look at his gymnastics and the way they reported numbers and the way they leverage the complexity of the tax code. And then Jeff Emmelt basically had a decade of like unwinding all this bullshit and then disclosing all, all the actual reality. I don't know if that's fair, but it seems like you look back on this era and there was not only not only, you know, behavior that's not, that, uh, that wouldn't survive the tests today, which mm -hmm. is fine. Um, and he did, he had some really interesting things. We want to be one or two, but is, doesn't a, a lot of it now feel like, okay, this was, this, this shit was like bordered on, 
on fraud, quite frankly. And want to know who else said that almost immediately after Welch retired was Bill Gross. And Bill Gross mm-hmm. is a complicated guy we know, but he was also a mm-hmm. pretty savvy investor. And it was mm-hmm. right then at the moment after Welch retired that he said, you know what? All of this absolutely relentless earnings management, which is delivered meet right. or beat quarters for something like 80 quarters in a row, like that's yeah. not possible. Which is it's not possible. <laughs> Unless you can control consumers. And so yeah. he was he called it then, but want to know what had not become reality at that point was Sarbanes Oxley. And so this we have to remember in the eighties yeah. and nineties, companies just had they didn't have to disclose as much. This was an mm-hmm. era of far lesser corporate transparency than the one we mm-hmm. live in today. And you're darn right, we're never going to know all the details, but it seems clear now, and it seemed clear to Bill Gross, even in 2002, that something unusual was happening inside the books at GE. So talk a little bit about how that un- unfolded, because because uh, Imolt sort of was left carrying the bag of shit. From what my, you know, And of course, there were criticisms of his tenure also, but a lot of it had to do with he didn't keep up the Facade, correct? Or I, and we maybe. should know, care that you were quoting <laughs> Jeff Immelt there. That's how mm-hmm. he described GE with a little mm-hmm. hindsight when mm-hmm. he understood exactly what kind of shape this company was in after he inherited mm-hmm. it from Welch. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a few different ways to look at Immelt's 16 year tenure. You can give him mm-hmm. credit for some of the things hmm. he did, which was trying to reshore some of the jobs that mm-hmm. Jack offshored. You can give him credit for building up things like the wind business and the medical business, but you got to know in the same breath, that he let GE Capital get even bigger. He was the one that bought WMC, Mm -hmm. one of the nation's Mm -hmm. biggest provider of subprime mortgages in Mm -hmm. 2005. And when I interviewed Imelt in the reporting for this book, Mm -hmm. he said it was so seductive. Those were Mm -hmm. his terms, right? It was Mm -hmm. impossible not to just keep going one more quarter, one more meet or beat. And you do whatever Mm -hmm. you could to make those numbers work. Mm -hmm. So in the next few years, GE is splitting into three companies, aviation, healthcare, and energy. It hasn't made appliances or light bulbs in years, sold that off. How much of that Jack Welch is doing and how much is just a business environment in the 21st century, that the idea that this has to now be unwound? Because this massive... The idea of a massive corporation that does everything and controls everything and controls politics, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you you guys both know the history of business. And we do go through these waves mm-hmm. of where mm-hmm. conglomerates in vogue and then they're not in vogue. Mm-hmm. And investors really mm-hmm. want specialized companies. We seem to be in one of those specialized eras, have been for the last 10 years. We've seen this in mm-hmm. all the deal making. But listen, we can't know the counterfactual, right? What the counterfactual I always imagine is what if in the early 80s, instead of going full neutron jack and saying to hell with American manufacturing, Welch had said, we're going to win American manufacturing. We're going to invest mm-hmm. in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we can't know the answers to those questions. So to what extent was this the inevitable result of Jack? Listen, we don't know what it would have looked like if he had invested in R&D all those years. We don't know mm-hmm. what it looked like if Imelt had made better deals during his 16 years. So yeah, I don't I don't want to dispute the fact that we live in a different age and, you know, conglomerates come and go, but I think it's clear that neither Welch nor Imelt set this company up for success as a combined entity in this day and age. Are there any companies out there right now that smell like GE 20 years ago? It was such a unique set of circumstances. But listen, in the book, I point mm-hmm. to companies where not only some in which the CEOs learned at Jack's knee and are still using him methods. Say who they are. Okay. Say who they are. Example A, and this is a big reason I wrote this book, is Boeing. 
Uh, just briefly, I Welch was in my head because I wrote this corner office column at the New York Times. I interviewed CEOs mm-hmm. for years and years. His name kept coming mm-hmm. up. That just bugged me. It was weird. Like, why is this giving this guy yeah, living rent-free okay. in the minds of CEOs? That just bugged me. Then I wrote the Boeing story. And I was, for a year, was one of the reporters at the time that dug into Boeing. What the hell had happened at that company to produce mm-hmm. such a badly designed plane? We got the engineering answer quickly. We know that story. The deeper cultural answer and the more important story was Jack Welch. Over 25 years, three of his protégés, starting with Harry Stonecipher in 1997, then Jim McNerney in 2005, and Dave Calhoun today. Dave Calhoun. Dave Calhoun today. All three of these men had studied at Jack's knee at GE, and they deliberately, Mm -hmm. explicitly, when I could talk to them about it, they would tell me. They were trying to make the company just like Jack ran it at GE. And that was the wake-up call to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy isn't just like a a, a myth. He's still shaping the way companies behave today. So you can look Mm -hmm. at Boeing, and you can look at companies like Kraft Heinz, where Mm -hmm. you got these Brazilian private equity billionaires behind it. And when you read all their books and read the interviews they've done over the year, and they are asked, you know, how do you run your companies? They say, we ran it like Jack ran GE. And now go tell me what kind of years Kraft Heinz has been. Scott, you mentioned, you know, like it looks a little fishy. The SEC has come down on Kraft Heinz time and again over the last few years because the numbers were fishy. Mm -hmm. So with with today's tech giants like Apple and Google are sort of trying to get into that position. They want to be in music, appliances, you know, everything, AR, aviation, healthcare, entertainment. Why couldn't uh, GE capitalize into that diversity? I'm Like, where does that go now? Who is the GE of this era? Or is it these tech companies that are trying to to diversify in this rather significant way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fun parallel and sort of compare mm-hmm. and contrast exercise we can do. It's important mm-hmm. to remember the breadth of GE's diversity is, I would argue, mm-hmm. quite unlike you know a media yeah. or tech company yes. that is owning right. a bunch of the different media and tech appliances. They're adjacent. They're adjacent. Right, whereas, whereas GE was doing everything from subprime mortgages to aircraft engines. It's hard mm-hmm. to point to a company, I think, today, except you could argue maybe um, Berkshire Hathaway, which, of course, is a very mm-hmm. different model, you know, That's common ownership, yeah. very mm-hmm. little interoperative, common operations. Um, it's hard to point to a company that has that sort of ambition to be so many things to so many people today. What can you say about the man or what surprised you about Jack Welch as, you know, a dad, a family man, a friend, you know, as a, a citizen? I will, I'll answer the question, but I want to note that I didn't Mm -hmm. go deep into his personal life. I got into it a bit, but there's Mm -hmm. a whole lot more that I left off the page. And that's because this book Mm -hmm. to me is Mm -hmm. ultimately a book about a system, not a man. But as Mm -hmm. a man, here's what we can say. In the office, he was crude, he was crass, he was a bully, he terrorized people for Mm -hmm. lots of his career. Um, As I did Mm -hmm. not honestly just go into him as a family man. There's a famous Mm -hmm. episode shortly after he retires when he leaves his wife of many years, um, marries the woman who would be his wife until the end of his life. But more interesting to me than that, is the way in which he tries to recast himself as this emotionally intelligent sort of CEO advisor type yeah. in retirement and tries to soften the edges because I think that he was his, understood. his second wife. That, that was a lot about his second wife, too. Yeah. She was very savvy to his, as I recall. 
to his imagery. Yeah, I think he understood how history would ultimately judge him. And all Mm -hmm. of this sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, wearing a sweater and talking about literally podcasts and audio books about emotional intelligence. Well, he started started a business school. Business school. And even more sort of mind melting is the fact Mm -hmm. that then he would go on to say things like shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world and take to Mm -hmm. LinkedIn and start write articles about why it's not good to stack rank, which is something he started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Andrew Carnegie gave us libraries. But one of the things, I'm curious, you say broke capitalism gutted the heartland and crushed the soul of crushed the soul of corporate. I like all these very aggressive verbs. That he, you, you wrote that he embraced deregulation, union busting, outsourcing. Um, isn't that actually what capitalism is under a Jack Welch mentality of the world? Or perhaps not, because it's changed so much. There's shareholder capitalism, there's, you know, ESG, there's all kinds of things. But isn't that really what capitalism is? Was he not embracing? How did he break it? Well, well you said the critic, you, you you modified the question mm. initially in a critical way. You said mm-hmm. under the Jack Welch vision. And, and that's mm-hmm. exactly right. But it wasn't. And this is the point I tried to make in the book. It wasn't like this for the 35 years or so before mm-hmm. he came on the scene. If you go mm-hmm. back, which I did, and read the annual reports of GE in the 50s, and go back and read the Johnson & Johnson Creed mm-hmm. of these sort of IBM seminal, too. IBM, absolutely, these seminal mm-hmm. documents where the CEOs in the post-war era very articulately spelled out how they believe businesses should strike a balance with society. And it Mm -hmm. was a much more holistic vision. They talked Mm -hmm. about making a return. Yes, they were not blind to the necessity to make a profit, but -hmm. they went on to say they had a responsibility, their word, to their employees, to their employees' families, to communities, Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. government even. GE bragged about how much it paid in taxes. Yeah, Jack was like, fuck that. Right, right. So it changed, right? And it changed first because there was sort of an intellectual revolution mm-hmm. that was percolating when Jack came on the scene. Friedman had written his essay in the New York Times Magazine 10 years earlier, but then he came along and he actually did it. He put this ideal into action and then all the rest of corporate America got in line. Damn, no, and that's the world we still live in today. Yeah, we don't slap Mount Mittenstein around nearly enough. Oh, we, as should. we should. We should. We should. More. Much more slapping. Yeah. Next um, I, I have just one more question. What, what? How do you look at today when they're trying to, you know, there's a lot of people trying to break down ESG or shareholder capitalism. Obviously, Larry Fink likes it. Elon Musk hates it. Uh, Elon Musk is kind of does that. Jeff Bezos is trying to break unions at his stuff. There's all kinds of people uh, trying to do different things. Where do you find corporate? What is the soul of corporate America now, if there is one that you could pick? Yeah, it's it, hmm. there is something changing in the water, in the zeitgeist. You, you mm-hmm. guys have been covering this, so have I, for the last 10 years, right? There's something mm-hmm. shifted after the financial crisis where I think mm-hmm. CEOs, and it was Occupy Wall Street, it was a whole bunch of things that led us to this moment where finally CEOs were having some modicum of self-reflection and saying like, wait, mm-hmm. are we really doing the right thing? We tell ourselves mm-hmm. we are, but are mm-hmm. we actually? And I think it was very hard for a lot of them to say like, yeah, everything's going okay. Obviously not. So thus enters the CSR and the ESG. Thus enters the arrival of stakeholder capitalism. In 2019, we have the business roundtable proclaiming yeah. the new purpose yeah, of a corporation it. is to look beyond the bottom line and do Yeah, I had a good laugh things. at that one. Laugh, laugh, laugh. Right. It's funnier. But, right. Like, show me the goods, people. And yeah. it's real hard to point to where big companies 
have fundamentally changed. But they have been pulled into social issues. Look at Disney in Florida and stuff like that. How is that? Like every minute of the day, they've got another political issue they have to grapple with in Texas or Florida or wherever. Yeah. I mean, I've been covering this change for five years. They hate Mm -hmm. it, right? They do not want to be doing this. Some of them might have like, you know, a little angel on their shoulder saying it's the right thing to do. But by and large, they would love to not have to deal with it. I think there's a difference, though, between issues like, are you going to take a stand on a a Texas abortion law? And are you going to give your people a raise? Because Mm -hmm. it's that Mm -hmm. second one, right? Are you taking good care of your people? that is the one that has just been neglected for 40 years now. If the minimum wage had kept pace just with inflation for the last 40 years, it would be over $25 an yes, hour right. today. We say this and all so, the time. And so, like, listen, we can talk about all the woke capitalism stuff and all the crazy social and political issues that companies get dragged into. I'm much more interested in making CEOs have a frank accounting of how they treat their people, how they treat their communities, and what kind mm-hmm. of impact the wealth they create, all these billions and trillions of dollars in profits, what kind of impact is that actually having on the company that we, or the country that we all have to live in? Uh, David, what CEOs do you admire? Oh, that's a hard question to ask, Scott. Good one. Listen, I cite a few in the book. Paul Pullman, who was CEO of Unilever for many years, I think did an admirable job of, first thing he did, he said, I'm stopping quarterly guidance, right? And and just there, he was changing the incentives. He said, that's Mm -hmm. not what I'm going to let you measure by. And I think that's such a critical first step. Paul then went on to have a good 10-year run and do a lot of pretty admirable things, including late in his tenure as CEO, rebuffing a takeover attempt by Kraft Heinz because he knew exactly Mm -hmm. what those self-professed Jack Welch protégés were going to do to his company, and he fended them off. I think Dan Shulman is doing pretty good work at PayPal in some ways. He has Mm -hmm. this financial wellness program for his employees where he He realized, and this is this critical insight that CEOs, I love it when they have it, he realized that the the lowest paid people in his organization were not really benefiting from the wealth PayPal created. They were Mm -hmm. having to choose between gas money and textbooks for their kids, Mm -hmm. right? And they were Mm -hmm. like, how is that possible for a PayPal employee to be like that? But these were call center employees in Phoenix or wherever. Mm -hmm. And so he raised their wages, he gave them stock, He gave them a financial literacy program so they could learn how to save and invest real well. But critically, he cut their healthcare costs, out-of-pocket healthcare costs, by something like 60%. And guess what? It cost PayPal a little money, but it's nothing. And guess what? KPI scores went up. Net promoter scores went up. People Mm -hmm. were happier. Retrition went down. There's loyalty. And consumers Mm -hmm. are happier. So like, it might cost a little money in the short term, yes. But in the long term, CEOs like Shulman, like Pullman, who can actually realize there's some merit to doing this in the long run, I think they're the winners. Can I ask you one more quick question? The departure of Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook. Any thoughts? Silence. (laughs) Silence. (laughs) I mean, where do you begin, right? Like, where do you begin? Positive and negative. Give me one thing she did you think was the correct thing. One thing, wow, that was a problem. I would say they're two sides of the same coin. And it's the degree to which she turned 
Facebook into an absolutely advertising powerhouse, right? It's the mm -hmm. positive and negative sides mm -hmm. of that coin are going to be her legacy, and we're all reckoning with them, right? You cannot mm -hmm. dispute the business results. One of some people would argue the all-time great business success stories. To, to just mm -hmm. you look at the sheer yeah. revenue Numbers. trajectory. Astonishing. Yep. Few have Wealth ever created. accomplished that. But look what it did to Facebook and look at how the reliance on advertising changed mm -hmm. the algorithm and what that changed the algorithm over the years did to our society. Yep. There it is, right? It's it's yeah. the same metric. And like you hold that diamond up and you look at it and it you it tells all sorts of stories. That is absolutely true. Anyway, David Gales is a wonderful writer for the New York Times, but he's written a book about Jack Welch who can, let's pull down that statue, and he does. Um, it's called The Man Who Broke Capitalism. It's out now. Thank you, David Gellis. Thank you, guys. Thanks, David. Best of luck in your senior year. All right, Scott, one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Okay, Scott, let's hear some predictions. Uh, any uh, predictions around whatever? You, what, what do you want to predict around? Whatever. Uh, well, I, I think Roku's in play, and I think there's going to be... An, it's interesting, though. It's actually down. I mean, everything's down today. Yeah. We're recording on Monday, but it's down 5 or 6%. Mm -hmm. But at a $10 billion market cap, its distribution, uh, what you referenced around its user interface, mm -hmm. its relationship with advertisers... It we has buy carved it. out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you always say that. <laughs> um, it's carved out. It's carved out a really um, formidable position. I think it's the number one hardware streaming device mm -hmm. ahead of Amazon. It's Sony can compete with the best of them. The interesting thing is, so Netflix and Disney are the obvious suitors, mm -hmm. but the thing, the downside to a Netflix, one of the reasons for Roku's success mm -hmm. is it's seen it's it's seen as Switzerland mm -hmm. because it. Doesn't produce its own content. I mean, it bought some content. Well, no, it's from starting Kirby. to. It's starting to. Yeah, but Disney and Amazon aren't. Apple aren't threatened by it. If Netflix owned Roku, yeah. I wonder if Roku would still be distributing. Yeah. Disney and Apple content Fair point. or whatever, whatever content. So, you might see other players come Who? in here. I don't know if it's a Comcast. Oh, Comcast. I don't, that's smart. But at ten billion dollars, yeah. this Cheap. this company having so much. So much fantastic data, so much vertical oh, uh, distribution, such rich advertiser relationships. It just yeah, strikes calling me Brian that Roberts, a lot of people. Ring, 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 ring. Yeah, it feels like the, it feels like. Uh, so my prediction is Roku and the dinner bell has has rung and will not be unrung. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to see a variety mm -hmm. of potential suitors Ooh, come in here. It might even be a, pri a private equity firm might even want to take. No, it's got to be attached to something. I got to think it's got to be attached yeah. to something. Anyway, we'll see. That's a very yeah. good prediction. That's an excellent prediction. It's very good. We'll I'll do see. a short one. So the SEC is investigating this back deal between Trump and Digital World Acquisition Corp to see if the two negotiated before DUAC went public. Oh, God. She's so tall. I don't think anything's going to happen. I don't think. No. It's like a, like this, the no. Musk thing. Slap on the wrist. Slap on the wrist kind yeah. of thing. No, we can't. We can't decide. <laughs> he encouraged insurrection and sedition, and we're still unsure on that. We're we're still not entirely sure. Although what I happened did run there. into someone from the SEC, and and who, they all listen to this show, and they're like, "We are watching, Kara." Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "Yeah, stop watching and start doing." Yeah, start doing. 
Anyway, we want your dating questions. By the way, speaking of what's going to happen in this show, that should be interesting. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your question for us or call 855-51-PIVOT. The link is also in our show notes. We're going to be doing a special dating show, which is possibly disastrous for our careers, but we'll see. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, Scott, that's it for the show. We'll be back on Friday for more. Can you read us out? Today's show is produced by Lara Naim and Evan Engel and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Andretot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows and Miel Severio. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Kara, have a great week. You too. And scramble the jets. We'll be right down there with all the children. There you go. 